conversation once or twice. Um, and uh, today's panel is going to be uh, getting in early, investing in early stage fund managers. Um, so how's everyone doing today? Good. Yeah, Good. great to hear. Great, great. Uh, if we can just quickly give a big round of applause for our panelists here today. And by a show of hands, who is an early stage fund manager here today? By a show of hands, nice and high, no chicken wings. Nice and high, nice and high. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so one of the, uh, my name is Andres Ospina. I'm, I'm director of charter membership here at Family Office Club, uh, one of uh, Richard's directors here. And uh, one of the, the, the great honors of working here is being able to learn some about so many of your businesses and your funds and your strategy and really be able to take in all those different perspectives from across the globe uh, on these early stage funds. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit today about how um, these family offices and investors are sourcing uh, early stage fund managers and how they're doing due diligence and how they pick early stage funds to invest in. So uh, we're going to start off with uh, quick introductions. I'll remind our panelists to please uh, keep all our answers today uh, to anywhere between 45 seconds to a minute and a half maximum uh, so we can get some really good insight and make sure to get some good questions uh, from our audience members today. So uh, we'll start off uh, with Doug. Okay. Um, my name is Doug Doan. I'm the um, GP of a small angel group and fund called Hivers and Strivers. Hivers and Strivers is a name for a kid at West Point that spends all his time in the library to achieve even higher standards. It wasn't me, by the way, but it, it fits for us because we are very narrowly focused. We have invest exclusively in companies led by military vets and especially graduates of the service academies, West Point, Annapolis, Coast Guard, and Air Force Academy. Um, because we're so fiercely focused, we have, uh, we've essentially believed that our, uh, our founders and our graduates are going to give us superior returns, and they do. They're the li most likely to be to succeed, but the least likely to be funded. So to put it in your words, uh, we have an asset class that no one else values, but we understand it very well, and we are fierce for these guys. Thank you. Uh, Andrew? Great, uh, Andrew Karsh. I spent the last 20 years managing institutional investments directly for large sovereign wealth funds, uh, pension funds, and foundations around the world to basically direct investments. Uh, one of the things that the reason I'm here today is to talk about potential models for disrupting what currently is the wealth management model that I feel like has a uh, significant leverage of fees. I know it was mentioned in some of the panels before basically looking for potential investors who would want to invest in a multifamily office that does direct investments. But having lots of experience with emerging managers seems like a, a great panel to add some value. Hey, everybody. Uh, David Johnston. So I've got a family office, Yeoman's Capital. Uh, we've been in blockchain since 2012, made about 40 investments across the industry, about half in uh, digitizing of assets related use cases and the other half in digital infrastructure. Um, we've also got a growth capital and private equity firm focused on the later stage blockchain protocols. Um, really focused on that because we sort of see this mega trend around the digitization of assets in general. We think this is the technology stack that's going to be largely used and uh, invested in a number of funds as a GP and an LP. So happy to uh, work with 
and talk about that today. Dan Krasinowski, plumber, $1,000 an hour. Outside of that, uh, let's have some fun here. Who wants to pay no taxes? Show of hands. Who wants more money faster? Excellent. So that's what I do. Uh, personally, I invest in niche asset classes, such as self-storage, uh, female entrepreneurs, also with an eye towards military. I think that's going to be great investments with the military founder. And more of an evangelist that there's a pool of $10 trillion out there that individuals could tap into, but there's a smart way to do it. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonathan Hakakian of Soundboard Angel Fund. We're a seed stage uh, micro venture fund uh, with a focus on early stage entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, we're really looking at those other major cities that, are, that have a burgeoning ecosystem, but there's not enough capital there to support them. Uh, we're working on our second fund now, and our focus is a little bit away from what, what you would typically expect. We're looking for understandable businesses that can uh, scalably grow and, and hit the return metrics that we need. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Looks like uh, someone's having a nice jacuzzi party upstairs. <laughs> Missing out, but it's okay. <laughs> um, but um, okay, great. So moving on. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Um, so once again, this, this topic is around uh, investing in early stage fund managers. And um, my first question is, are emerging fund managers more attractive now than they were previously due to the fact that existing funds uh, are currently have a reputation of not performing to the investors' expectations? Are you guys looking at emerging funds uh, a little bit more aggressively now? And uh, yeah, we can start with David. Uh, well, for me, being in a new asset class like blockchain, you really have a lot of new asset managers uh, that have come out of that industry. And I really do prefer folks that understand the technology and have a finance background. I think you really need both uh, in order to perform well. Uh, so we invested uh, my family office in multi-coin capital in 2017. We were the first GP and LP there. Uh, and they've since grown tremendously, got Andreessen and Chris Dixon and David Sachs, uh, Fred Wilson all in as LPs and GPs. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of success where those guys were coming from being tech entrepreneurs who had a background in finance. And so that mix was really successful. They did something I had never really seen out of a, a venture fund, which is they hired developers. I think it was probably their second or third hire. They were hiring engineers to understand the technology at a deep level, and they were really building out that analysis, and now they have all these reports that they release to the industry. So for us, I, I really prefer somebody who goes deeper on the technology and dives in. Great, yeah. thank you, so, Andrew. Yeah, the, oh, yeah, no, I would agree on the, uh, on the tech side that certainly people that are more cutting edge in terms of the, the innovation. You know, on the other hand, on the more traditional investment side, if you think about uh, hedge funds, private equity, and the like, you know, I think the challenge is that there are a large number of um, organizations that have sort of gotten embedded. And when you look at the fee structures, they charge a fee structure that they think is commensurate with the fact that they're embedded in the industry. And so if you can find a man managers that have worked at some of these funds that are looking to start their own fund and have a more favorable fee structure, I think that's, that's certainly an opportunity. And in general, looking at people's pedigrees is critical. I'm sorry, a more of a what fee structure? A favorable fee favorable. structure. So... You know, again, if you think about somebody says, well, you used to work at Renaissance or you used to work at, you know, SAC or somebody like that, 
if somebody that's actually managed investments at a large scale on the buy side for an institution, I think that's that's a critical component in terms of pedigree as opposed to somebody says, I used to work on a prop desk at Goldman Sachs, where I think we've seen historically a lot of these funds have raised money based on pedigree working at a certain organization where it's challenging to replicate that return stream. Effectively, if you look at where they've worked, if they've worked in an organization similar to what they're going to do now and with the same level of um, not only research but uh, resources available, and, that, and that's critical in understanding whether it was the individual or the organization that was able to make the returns they're looking at historically. Fantastic. Thank um, you. The, yeah, there's Jonathan. some really great data out of uh, University of Chicago. I think Professor Steve Kaplan actually uh, proved out that over the past 10, 15 years, first time or second time fund managers actually outperform the later stage fund managers. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because uh, first time fund managers get more creative with what their focus is, how they're structuring deals and, and how they're getting in. So. Um, uh, my, again, my, my uh, little world is very narrow because we only invest in military guys, but I would answer your question with an emphatic no. Um, the big beast, of course, in the early stage world is Silicon Valley, and I've taken four of our guys that we would later sell for over, um, that we had significant ex exits of six times or more, and every single one of them they passed on. So there might be very, very deep pockets in Silicon Valley um, but when it comes, to, at least in my world, investing in military guys, they have deep pockets but very, very short arms. It's not just your world. Yeah. <laughs> so my two cents, I think, sums up what everybody's saying. Back, somebody with a, a CV that was an analyst for 10 years, that's not going to bring returns anymore. I think you need somebody that's had boots on the ground. Uh, personally, if somebody's not on the third stage of the one, two, three punch, so take self-storage. It seems... It's part of real estate, it seems easy. It's not complicated, but you just have to be in it a few years. So I will not write a big check or advise to write a big check if somebody has not been an owner operator and then actually tried to raise money on their own on a deal basis before raising a fund. Uh, it's, you know, big name, big company. I, I, I really shy away, it's a scary thing. It's just, well, why are you coming to little me in Austin, Texas if you're this big, you know, West Coast guy? So I, I think it has to, uh, you know, what's been your most recent stuff that you actually done in the last like year. Wins, recent yeah. wins. Well, one of the things I would just add to the comment before about newer fund managers outperforming, you, know, you think about all the large fund managers, you know, again, look at private equity, look at uh, hedge funds, look at real estate. They all started out 10, 20 years ago with a couple million dollars, made huge returns, which is how now they're managing 20, 30 billion dollars. The challenge is when you get to run 30 billion dollar strategy, you can't have a single strategy that you're 100% focused on. So you end up diversifying into different strategies that you may not be an expert on or you hire people from different firms. And that's why the returns become so much wider and, and generally worse. Because when you're managing $30 billion, you can't be as nimble as you were when you're managing one or two billion. So it makes a huge difference in terms of the return profile, just the fact that their, their size of their assets has grown exponentially. Fantastic, great. Um, so we'll move on to the next question, thank you. Um, so um, for myself, uh, as someone that that hears a lot about the kind of marketing or sales woes of, of a lot of the emerging fund managers. And they, and they talk to me about how, you know, there's so many people reaching out to you. There's so many people that want to just be able to get their, their one pager in front of you or, or their one sentence elevator pitch to you. For these emerging fund managers, what is something that when you think about the emerging fund managers that you have worked with, what was that initial comment or statement or even email that really kind of stood out and allowed them to kind of isolate themselves as, as different? Um, 
I don't know. I've never seen that, so um, I'm the wrong person to ask. I think for us, you have to put some num points on the board is what matters. You have to put have some success. So it matters when you have a guy that, that you can take to fruition and put to exit very quickly. That's what um, folks uh, gets people attention. Anything other than real results is just really not, um, not going to make it. I, I will say one other thing, especially since uh, folks talked about social investing and things like that. The more you can connect folks directly to the investment, the real entrepreneur that's doing real things and put some heart and soul into the investment, the more likely we are not to only have a good return, but for the investors to get excited about what they're doing. Because, you know, I don't, I, you guys are all real smart people, but man, it, I would rather drive a bus than to go and talk about derivatives and risk strategy and all that kind of crap. There's got to be a real guy, a real live breathing person there behind it. So if that doesn't move you, then what we're doing just doesn't make sense. Man. But what, when, when you go, what, when people invest, my limited partners, when they go to cocktail parties, they're not talking about their tax strategy. They're talking about our guys, you know, what they did and what, how amazing it was and how they're connected to it. And if you don't have that, man, this just doesn't make sense. You're, you really are better off on the bus. Got it. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> in general, what we look at is uh, not only track record, but also their investment thesis, their research team. Uh, the robustness of their their platform, looking at custodial structures. I mean, you know, again, just because it's an emerging manager doesn't mean you shouldn't have the same infrastructure as a as a, a seasoned manager. It's not that difficult to call up Pershing or State Street and get an account. Make sure you have real risk management tools. Understand what their decision making process is. Understand how diversified their team is. You know, so just because people are emerging managers, I don't think it's an excuse for not having a robust process and platform. No, I, I agree with that. And when it came to Kyle and Tushar, the founders of Multicoin, I'd probably had 20 or 30 funds uh, pitch me before I decided to invest in them. And they're the one I picked because they really cared about what you just said. They cared about custody. And given blockchain is largely a bearer asset class, they really went deep into the weeds around how to do true self-custody how to get insurance for that, how to get partners uh, that really knew the cybersecurity. And when I saw that they were willing to sort of go all the way to hedge all of that risk, because that's the risk I was primarily worried about, right? You have to understand, in the Bitcoin industry, none of the exchanges I used in 2012 still exist, right? Mt. Gox is gone, BitInstant is gone, and there are better exchanges that have been built. But given it's a bare asset type of asset class, you know, you really have to have a sophisticated view on how to store and manage the assets. And they were the most willing to sort of go uh, five levels further than most people uh, in that activity. And so that really impressed me, and I knew my assets would be safe with them, and that was the bar I needed to get over. Great. And I want to uh, kind of ask a little bit of a follow-up question there. So you said 20 to 30 pitches, right? And there were probably, out of those 20 to 30 pitches, probably like another 300 that would have hoped to have that chance to sit in front of you. How did those 20, 30 actually get in front of you? Um, most of it was at conferences. So I've spoken at 60 plus blockchain conferences the last six or seven years. And so people find me there and uh, tell me about what they're doing. But it was a lot of it was finance guys who were new to the industry and they were just sort of leaving assets on exchanges and they didn't really have a robust view of how are they gonna safely store the assets I was gonna give them. Because I had been 
maybe lucky and not, maybe conservative and paranoid enough not to lose any of my tokens. So I'd, I'd gotten pretty good at security. So if they didn't know more about cybersecurity than I knew, I wasn't going to hand them my assets and risk them losing them. So they were the first two that got over that hurdle that they went even further than I had on the security aspects. Got it. So a broader understanding than you on cybersecurity really allowed them to build that credibility to actually get more of your time. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Okay. Jonathan? It's, it's really about differentiation and building the story around that and trying to get your in, in front of the right people and that, like the other panels uh, earlier this morning were saying, it's about building that relationship. Yep. And, and can you elaborate when you say like building that story? What do you mean by story, right? You have to be engaging. <laughs> um, you have to, in, in the early stage market, it's, it's all about building the relationship, um, getting people to, to like you and to bet on you because uh, early stage managers as well as early stage companies don't have that track record that they can just point to and say, hey, this is what I've been doing for 20 years. I'm going to you know, re repeat the same formula. It's, it's a lot of believing in the founder and in the management team. So it, it's, it's about building that trust and, and sharing that and building the relationship. Great. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so what are some red flags? And I know you guys a little bit touched up on this, but that are really going to halt that due diligence, right? Like what are some clear red flags? And some things that may seem obvious to you guys may not be that obvious to our audience. So, you know, if it's, don't think any, any answer to this question is too obvious or... or, or so I'll try it a little different way. Um, because earlier we had the guy talk about looking for unicorns. Um, again, I'm, I'm an army guy. We, I don't know what a unicorn is. You know, it's a mythical beast. Maybe you've seen one. I'm not going to argue with that. But we don't know what unicorns are, and it's the wrong mission to give an army guy the task of going to find a unicorn. That's not what we do, right? But we find something even better. We look for great leaders. So we want woodpeckers. We want people that just are fierce, relentless, and don't stop. And if, you see a wood, if you've ever seen a woodpecker, it's 20,000 times relentless pecking at something to get it done. Woodpeckers don't come to your backyard feeder. They're self-sufficient. We like that. So we find things that are in our wheelhouse that we understand and know, and we don't try to do mission creep but trying to do something that we don't know how to do. So I'm the wrong guy to look for a unicorn. We've got one, by the way. Thank you. But we found him first as a woodpecker. And so I think the key is to have a little bit of humility in this business, to know you don't know everything, and stick to what you do know, and do that really, really, really well. I mean, the easy way for me to say no, if somebody goes with the whole 220 company line or in the first page of the pitch or LinkedIn, that's an easy, nice to know you, thank you. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Sure, I mean, kind of the traditional, I'd say two things to watch out for. One is if somebody comes heavy with the fees they're charging, it sounds obvious, but if you're enamored with their background, stay away. It should be more the model or who they work with, which companies they want to put under their umbrella, I think is one thing. And then secondly, if somebody came from a reputable shop, you should do a little diligence. There's a, I won't name names, but fantastic shop in Central Texas. A gentleman is going on his own, but it's learned that there was I mean, a mega high net worth person that they never raise money over this many years. So you have to caution, do you want to be the first check going in knowing that this person never raised uh, or would he or she be under the gun to invest your money without finding a great deal? So do an extra step of diligence, uh, kind of what has been their investing track record for gaining investments. 
Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, especially in terms of the robust structure, strategy, and having been through the experience before, I think there's a lot of investors, you know, I'm sure myself included, the first year, few years, you make money, you think you're a genius, and then suddenly the 2008 hits or, you know, 98 hits, and, and suddenly you're not quite sure what to do. And unless you've lived through that in an organization that sort of taught you how to deal with challenges, you're never going to learn um, and you don't want to be an investor who learns the hard way that this person was just way too optimistic. I mean, one of my favorite phrases is, you know, by the infamous Mike Tyson, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, that <laughs> happened to a lot of investors in 2008 and times before that. And people are very optimistic and they have great models and great strategies. And if they haven't lived through a few market cycles, it's very challenging for them to understand the type of dynamics that can happen when the market turns down really fast. Great. Yeah, just to echo that, um, that's sort of one of the big things I looked for were people with scar tissue. Um, there have been 13 major corrections since 2012 in the uh, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain markets. So people that hadn't been through that volatility before would go through a cycle and they'd hit a bear market and they'd drop out, right? Whereas I guess old timers like me, right? We had sort of seen the ups and downs so many times, you know, you just keep working, you just keep focused and you prepare uh, for the next market run. And so, you know, people with that kind of scar tissue that are, are resilient, you know, um, are really attractive. As uh, I've worked with partners before, you know, they go through a tough cycle and they're gone, right? And so I'm looking for people that have a long-term view on an industry and are trying to build based on fundamentals, not a quick, quick return. Mm. Great. Uh, Jonathan, would you want to add on that and bit on the red flags? that stop you from doing due diligence? For me, it's all about whether the, the other person will listen or whether they're just gonna talk at me endlessly. <laughs> um, if they just wanna talk, then I'm not the right fit. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great point. Um, fantastic. Uh, so right now I wanna kinda lead this off to the audience. If anybody has a question for our panelists, my friend. Sure, sure. We have we don't we, we go to uh, the service academy grads because that's where our investor LPs came from, and that's kind of low hanging fruit for us. You know, really smart guys. But we have so, uh, several companies. One fastest growing coffee company in the United States. Two Army Rangers. We 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 supported them. All right. Great.
Yeah, I, I guess I would have a few questions. Sorry, I can't see you, but the one is, do you have an audited like return stream from an accountant that you can provide it? You know, sort of t as, as close as you can make it to a standard discussion regarding what your returns are, who the team was, who produced the returns, are those people still there? I mean, normal, try, you know, figure out how to get it as close to a normal discussion as possible. And then, you know, I think for family offices in particular, you probably have a more of a, a direct discussion about the relationships and, and who, who those people are and what they bring to the table. Um, you know, compared to other organizations, you know, it's, you probably have more ability to tell your story than you would if you're going to a large institution where they have a much more rigid due diligence process. Um, so that probably works in your favor. But again, it's telling a story, but trying to figure out how to produce a, a presentation that's um, readable in terms of normal standard structure of you know, returns and personnel and, and with some audited you know, accounting standards that you're using. Great. Anybody else like to feed off that question? I mean, I would just embrace your track record, right? If you guys got 13 years of track record, to Andrew's point, you know, try to make that as digestible as possible and just go on that. Um, differentiation is good, especially with uh, family office. There's, they're looking for innovative structures, as we've talked about, where you've got better fees and things like that. So I would just embrace it. And, and that's a selling point. It's not uh, something to be ashamed of. Great. Thank you. Uh, I have time for one more question in the back. Can you make sure to project really nice and loud for me? So for my family office, yeah, we're typically the first investment in. So we like very early stage projects. A lot of people approach me uh, when they're putting their team together, uh, things like that. And it can be pre-revenue and, and all of that. I'm more interested in what their uh, differentiation is and how they're moving forward the industry. Uh, there's sort of a lot of me too. The last couple of years in blockchain, everybody's got a blockchain initiative. But I really want to know where it's going to sort of add a new set of assets to the industry, or it's bringing this technology to a new vertical. Um, that's what I'm interested in, is, is fundamentally advancing the industry. Um, and then for uh, Yeoman's Growth Capital, YGC, we tend to do the other side, which is later stage, Series B and beyond uh, protocols and companies. And there we're looking for uh, folks with an established team, a lot of product market fit, uh, revenue, real customers, that sort of thing. And so I think we're just getting to that development stage in our ecosystem uh, where there are maybe 15 or 20 companies that are ready for those growth stage uh, type of plays. We are looking for what I call the second round of capital companies. The bootstrapping's been done, the friends and family has been done, and now they're, they're, the founders are full-time in the business. There's something out there. Uh, so typically that's three to 10 million pre-money valuations. And as far as activity, uh, because we have such a collaborative approach with our LPs, we have 30 to 50 LPs in, in, in between the funds, um, and they're part of our diligence process and our screening, it, a, a natural relationship becomes apparent between one or two of our LPs and the portfolio company. So it's not something that we demand, 
but it, it's a natural advisory or liaison role that, that just comes out of our process. Yeah, and to your point earlier, do they listen is, is the big test because yeah. if they're willing to listen, then I, I prefer to be highly active to answer your question. Um, I'll go in and even at like beyond a board level, even almost at a co-founder kind of level, yeah. spend a lot of time with the team. In fact, we ended up developing a 47-point checklist that we would take every portfolio company through and say, you know, uh, you know, do you have this in your tech stack? Do you have a way to do hedging? Do you need lawyers in the Caymans? Like, whatever those gaps that they had in their process were, and maybe they had 30 of those things, but we could make those other 17 introductions and help them fill in. Because we've just done this with so many companies, we sort of knew all those areas where we could add value. So we hired full-time staff just to support our portfolio companies. So we'd have one full-time staff per 10 companies. So weekly calls with the entrepreneurs. And, you know, if people were open to that, they embraced that and they used it for customer flow and partnerships and everything else. But others sort of, oh, we got it all figured out. And, you know, then it's probably not a fit. Yeah, Dan? And I only got to point two on David's. I brought him tacos and bagels and then I ran out of things. But, uh, you know, on the flip side of the coin, if you're trying to get a feel of a manager, particularly if they're at that stage before you're going to invest, a lot of folks are going to crowdfunding basically to test the market, to test their MVP. So personally, you can put in as little as 500 or a grand, and you can learn a lot. Uh, and frankly, they'll probably share more because now you're one of their investors, and you'll get a feel of kind of their big play. Or frankly, if this is one of their side companies, how they act, how they're going to communicate with their investors going forward. Just a word of caution on the crowdfunding or crowd investing. If you are going under the Jobs Act, be careful because a lot of funds and professional investors won't invest in those companies yet because the court system still have to figure that out. Great. Fantastic. Uh, well, that wraps up our third panel of uh, today. Uh, we're going to uh, wrap up right now with uh, lunch. Thank you so much. Thank you for the round of applause. Thank you, panelists, today. And... Uh, we're going to be uh, coming back here for lunch in just exactly an hour.